the music to get get in the mood for our spectacular today. Uh, it's, it's sound like uh, Wolfman versus UFO music, but it was uh, a new song for me. I like that one. Um, yeah, we're here doing another Halloween show. Can't get enough of that at this time of the year. Um, yeah, Barbara's here with us, and you know we brought it another supernatural expert for a third co-host. Um, please make welcome Delbert Brady. And we also have um, Rob Sullivan as our guest. And, you know, uh, we are qu- quickly approaching Halloween and you're right here that it's at this time of the year that this is when the veil is the thinnest and we can easily communicate with the other side and uh, Christian schools are going to downplay uh, the ghosts of this season and focus on uh, the end of the year uh, season harvest and uh, kids are enjoying the candy and creative costumes is it really a demonic night? Um, you know, we have 31 days of scary movies on you know, the Turner, Turner Classic Movie uh, Channel. Uh, so to help us make uh, sense of all, all of this, uh, Rob is here. Uh, yeah, t- talk with us and you know, just get his observations on Halloween. Uh, you know, Rob's been a longtime regular on Nightlight discussing his Arch of Enoch, uh, Pact with the Devil, uh, Cinema Symbolism, C- Cinema Symbolism 2, and the soon-to-be-released Cinema Symbolism 3. Hey, Rob, how are you? Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on Nightlight for uh, another Halloween special. It's a uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I was first uh, a couple about five years ago. Uh, another host approached me to do a Halloween show, and I thought, oh, what a great idea! Let's do it. And uh, last year, someone approached me also to do it, and I kind of laid low off of radio for a little while. I kind of where we wanted to concentrate until on uh, getting cinema symbolism three done and it, and it is complete. I, I am, I am finished and it probably won't come out till next year. Of course. I mean, in fact, I know it won't. And um, I haven't done any radio in a while. And I know that you and Barbara had wanted to have me on. And I kind of said, well, let's do a show once the book comes out. But then as Halloween, you know, where it's right around the corner, I thought, Oh, well, let's do another uh, seasonal radio show on Halloween and maybe touch on some horror movies and things like that. And, uh, you know, it, it, they always seem to be kind of popular. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's a nice little break to return to the airways. I haven't done anything, I don't think, since around March or April. Like I said, I spent the summer really just writing Cinema Symbolism 3, getting that out, you know, or finishing it up, I should say. And uh, it probably won't come out until probably March or April of next year, I would think. So returning to the airwaves doing the Halloween seasonal special is always something I look forward to. And, uh you know, it, it's going to be a good show. Uh, so, you know, here it is, Halloween, and uh, let's talk some uh, horror films. Yeah. So, uh, but before we get into 
you know, your uh, analysis of all all these uh, classic movies. Um, you know, maybe we ought to look at yeah the the origins of Halloween and you know work our way up to today. So, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What are some of these like folklore traditions with the costumes and handing out the candy and and you know when did all this begin and where? It's a uh, it's a pre-Christian celebration going back. Uh, it, it, it originally originates in Europe, um, and uh, it, it was the festival of Samhain. It's spelt Samhain, or, or it's S-A-M-H-A-I-M, but it's pronounced Samhain, and uh, it's a Druidic Irish Celtic festival um, marking the halfway point between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice, and it's, it's the end of the harvest. It's the uh, celebration of the oncoming darkness of uh, November and December with the winter months. And of course, Christmas is the celebration of the birthday of the sun, uh, the resurrection of the sun. And essentially between Samhain, October 31st, and December 25th, this is the darkest part of the year. And on December, excuse me, on October 31st, this was when, as you said during the intro, when the veil was down, when the darkness was overcoming the light, and when the spirits of the dead and demons were giving license to roam the countryside. And this is where a lot of the customs from Halloween come from. The whole idea of like carving jack-o'-lanterns, placing them on your doorstep at night on October 35th, on October, on October 35th, that's usually where my mind is, on October 31st, um, this was a protective talisman to keep spirits away from your house, to, to uh, keep the spirits of the dead, perhaps unwanted demons, um, out of your abode, out of, out of your dwelling. It's a death's head. It's supposed to look like a human skull. So this is where the carving of jack-o'-lanterns come from. And the same thing with costuming and um, wearing of costumes was to um, become unrecognizable on that night so you couldn't get plagued or tormented by spirits um, walking the countryside. And another custom was that you were supposed to cook, put out on your doorstep or in front of your dwelling uh, baked goods, candies, breads, pastries, and this was an offering to the dead. Uh, to basically take one of these and keep keep going, essentially, just stay out of my house, stay out of my abode, stay out of my dwelling. And of course, this is the modern day custom of trick or treating. And um, you know, it, it morphs into in in England, uh, they there, there is uh, Halloween um, celebrations, but they were overshadowed, and they kind of still are um, by a festival uh, by a celebration that takes place on November fifth, which is Guy Fox Night. Um, so Halloween and even in England, it's caught on more and more over the years, but it's still kind of overshadowed by Guy Fox Night, which is November 5th. But of course, it becomes very popular in the United States. And it really um, is, is still, you know, up until modern times, it's sort of a ch- children's holiday. Um, and this really sort of changes um, with the release of Carpenter's Halloween in 1978 which really reinvests the holiday with this dark paganism, this idea of, you know, the night that the devils come out, that the witches roam freely, that the dead walks among us. 
and really reinvents the Halloween as it is, it re reinvents the Halloween and, and the holiday in general as this time of very of deep darkness, a foreboding holiday, things like that. Um, so it's uh, it, it's really uh, caught on in the last 20 years. I mean, I think I saw somewhere that it's like, you know, the most, you know, behind Christmas now, the most popular holiday to decorate for. And I mean, I, I was born in 1971. So even growing up as a kid, you know, Halloween didn't really, you didn't really start seeing Halloween decorations, you know, really until about a week before the holiday. Um, right. Now right. this isn't the case. I mean, you got jack-o'-lanterns and, and decorations all over the place, easily starting on October 1st. So uh, it's really become popular in the last uh, five, to, or five to 10 to 15 years or so. Yeah, and, uh, Rob, you had a great segue into just uh get getting uh, the, the movie halloween um yeah, uh, set up so we could start an- analyzing that uh, the first one and you know we can get into uh two and three and you know you really do make a Good arguments in uh, cinema symbolism too. That Halloween three is actually a, a really good movie that fits into uh, these uh, pre-Christian ideas. So, 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 so let's maybe want to start with yeah your analysis of. Yeah, you know, the Michael Myers uh, character and Dr. Loomis. Yeah, well, we could touch on all three of them. Um, okay. Yeah, Hall- Halloween Part 1, um, and this was just – they just released a sequel to this last year, or, uh, Halloween – I call it Halloween 2018. That movie's very interesting. That's something I'm doing in Cinema Symbolism 3. Halloween 1 is really a fascinating movie because it really the, – the Michael Myers character, it's called The Shape. Um, really is the personification or this um, epitomization, you know, epitomizing these dark forces that roam Halloween night, that can't be stopped, uh, that are there, that are omnipresent, and you just can't get rid of it. I mean, you, it's just there and you can't, you know, you can't, uh, you can try to avoid it, but you can't um, get rid of it, essentially. Um, there are some very interesting symbolism in, in Halloween. Um, I've talked about this before, and this is pretty common knowledge now, so I'm not going to delve into it too deep. Of course, the mask that Michael Myers wears is William Shatner uh, from Star Trek. They got a Captain Kirk mask, cut the eyes out, matted the hair, painted it white, voila, the shape, this emotionless face that he wears. It works for great effect, by the way. That's much more well-known, so I'll kind of uh, stay off that. But, um, you know, you do have the Loomis character who is sort of, you know, the Jungian psychoanalyst, um, sort of the wizard Hermes Trismegistus figure, knows knows Michael Myers, understands him, understands him that he's this unstoppable force. Um, Even in Halloween 2, he talks about how Halloween, witches and goblins, it's all part of the subconscious mind. It's all part of, um, you know, the unconscious mind. It's just manifestations in reality, essentially. And um, that's interesting. Um, I love in Halloween part one, and this carries over into part um, two, 
And they're in there because they're some of Carpenter's favorite movies, but they really do have a deeper psychological symbolic undercurrent. And that's um, if you, the next time you're watching Halloween part one, and then it gets into part two, um, you'll notice that there is a horror movie marathon going on hosted by a person named Dr. Dementia. Um, I should point out that Dr. Dementia is voiced by Tommy Lee Wallace, um, who is the director of Halloween three. Uh, you're he'll, you're hear his voice all over the place. Um, if you're a fan of John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace directed Halloween three. He is the voice of the horathon in Halloween and he is the voice of the um, uh, the um, KAB uh, voiceovers in uh, The Fog. Uh, and he is also the voice of the Silver Shamrock commercials in Halloween 3. So that's Tommy Lee Wallace. And during Halloween, you'll pay attention to this Dr. Dementia horathon where they're ho the dementia is hosting three horror movies. He, I think uh, one of the babysitter, babysitter talks about it, where it's The Thing, Forbidden Planet, and then in part two, it's Night of the Living Dead. And these were old, uh, Carpenter has said that these are uh, three of his favorite movies. Of course, he remade The Thing in 1982. But, you know, on a, a cursory glance, you, know, you can say, oh, it's just nostalgia, it's just a trip down memory lane. But when you actually look at them, they're actually reflecting what's going on inside the actual movie. Um, so the first movie, and this ties into what Loomis is talking about, so the first movie that you see is The Thing. Um, and if you're familiar with that movie, this is a movie that takes place in um, the North Pole where the um, Air Force discovers a space alien and he becomes uh, in the shape of a human being. He can't be reasoned with, he can't be bargained with, and um, they just got to stop it. They got to get rid of it. The scientist there thinks he can argue with it and reason with it and tries to learn from it. And of course, the other ones know that it must be destroyed. And of course, this is reflecting Michael Myers. Um, where it's the opposite, where Loomis knows that Michael Myers is this epitomization, epitomizing these dark forces that can't be reasoned with, that can't be bargained with, that just has to be completely eliminated or destroyed uh, entirely. Um, so this is a parallel with the thing um, and the shape in Halloween, where the thing is a space alien taking the form of a human being that can't be reasoned with or bargained with. And this is, of course, the same thing with Michael Myers this creature that represents, you know, all the evil associated with Halloween being personified that can't be reasoned with or bargained with, that just has to be destroyed. So we have that parallel. Then the next movie up in Dementia's, uh, the, in the Dr. Dementia Horathon is uh, Forbidden Planet. Um, this is very interesting on a psychological level because in that movie, the character of Dr. Morbius uh, projects his shadow personality and it, it, it's a long story. I delve into it much more in Cinema Symbolism 3. But the whole, the whole underpinning is that he, what Freud called the id, or what Jung called the shadow, this character in Forbidden Planets known as Dr. Morbius, projects this uh, shadow personality outward. It manifests, and it winds up killing the crew of this uh, spaceship that has landed. And the whole idea of, of um, the projection of the shadow self is epitomized by Laurie's two friends. Um, this is Annie and Linda, who are the polar opposites of, um, of Laurie. Uh, they have no problem uh, satisfying their libidos, uh, engaging in mischief um, at night. They, they willingly engage their shadow personalities, their ids, 
to satisfy their libidos. And of course, Laurie does not. Um, she remains a virgin. She remains virginal, the good girl, the conscientious babysitter. Um, so the projection of Laurie's id, her shadow personality, actually manifests at the end of the movie where the fight with Michael is a, is a version of her sex act. Um, I mean, she's stabbing Michael over and over again with phallic um, symbols, the, the phallic knife, uh, the pointy uh, clothes hanger, the pointed uh, sewing pin or sewing needle. Um, this for Laurie is a sex act that um, she's releasing her id, her shadow self, and this is what's going on in Forbidden Planet. Um, and this is very fascinating. So the movies of this Dr. Dementia horathon are actually being manifested in the movie. And then you go to um, the sequel, Halloween 2, where the third movie in Dr. Dementia's horathon is Night of the Living Dead. And this is, again, what Michael Myers is, is become. Now he's the risen dead, right? I mean, he's killed and resurrected. Um, and this is what's going on inside um, Night of the Living Dead, where the main character, who is, again, straight-laced, uh, very uptight, Barbara, is trying to escape her brother, who gets, gets turned into a zombie and is trying to kill her. And, of course, this is what winds up happening in Halloween 2, where Laurie is trying to escape her brother, Michael, who has likewise been turned into a zombie. So... This is really fascinating where you have these three movies of Dr. Dementia's Horathon actually being representations of what's going on inside the movie um, of Halloween Part 1 and 2. Very fascinating. Um, I really enjoyed seeing that there for the first time. And it's something I talk about in Cinema Symbolism 3, just how the movies of Halloween Parts 1 and 2 are actually representing what's going on inside uh, of the actual movie you're seeing. Uh, very fascinating. Very well done by Carpenter. It, 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 Rob, you, throughout you know, your analysis of you know, the Halloween movies, you, know, you are are also making these connections from ancient history, like you know, Hermes uh, Trismegistus, to you know the setting. A character like that in modern times, it, it, yeah, that's one of the it, really uh, interesting aspects of uh, your your book is you know, just that taking that uh, analysis deeper than just you know, uh, you know Michael Myers is you know just the bad guy and oh no no uh, maybe it's, yeah. yeah you're taking it so much more deeper in, into what uh, John Carpenter uh, was really envisioning. Yeah, it's it's the archetypes. It's archetypal yeah. imagery, um, with Loomis being the Hermes know-it-all, the Hermes Trismegistus archetype. Um, you know, this is again, I talked about this on other shows. This, of course, is, you know, Albus Dumbledore, Obi-Wan Kenobi. This is Morpheus in the Matrix films. It's the wizard archetype. It's the wisdom provider archetype, the old sage uh, provider. I mean, and it's, um, you know, it, it's it, this is what Jung talks about. It's very critical to understanding movies. And, you know, you had mentioned in the previous part, I should just delve into it real quick, Halloween 3. Um, just briefly on that one, this is a movie that I analyzed in Cinema Symbolism 2. This is a fantastic movie. It, it was beat up um, it, terrible, terribly at the time that when it was released because it didn't have Michael Myers in it. 
Um, it was subtitled Season of Bewitch. Probably would have done a lot better if, if it had just remained that night title, but it probably wouldn't have gotten made if it didn't have Halloween in it. Um, in the title, Halloween 3, of course, it's a standalone. It has nothing to do with uh, parts one and two. But it's a very important movie because, not, for starters, it's a very good movie. Um, it's it's very entertaining, and it's, it's incredibly fun to watch, especially around Halloween. Um, but it's one of the first movies that fuses witchcraft with the computer age. Uh, there are only two of them. The, 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 the two first movies, at least the ones that I can think of, that fuse... Uh, witchcraft and uh, the occult and black magic with computer technologies. The, the, the two that come to mind is Halloween 3 is one of them, mm-hmm. which, which was released in 1982. And then the other one I think was released in 1981 was Evil Speak, uh, which is another great film that uh, fuses black magic and demonic sorcery and Satanism with computers. So if you've never checked out, if you've never seen Evil Speak, uh, check that one out. That's a very dark movie. That's a very good movie. Um, You know, again, very dark, but very entertaining. Halloween 3, I love. Um, The movie has been completely rehabilitated. Um, It has definitely found a new audience. Um, You know, I never saw it in the theater. I saw it on cable. And people just routinely put the movie down because it didn't have Michael Myers in it. And I remember remember watching Halloween 3, you know, I was probably like 10, 11, maybe 12 years old at the time. And I I saw it on cable for the first time. And I remember watching, I just really liked it. I mean, I just, I loved how in that one, it's almost like the anti-archetypes where, you know, the the damsel isn't rescued. The damsel in distress gets killed. Um, The wizard figure is the evil wizard um, who is the, you know, you know, you look at Connell Cochran, um, this is the James Bond character, the James Bond villain who always fails, but in Halloween 3 seems to succeed. I, I really like that. And then, you know, the character of the hero, Dan Chalice, Dr. Chalice, you know, I mean, this guy's kind of a bum. I mean, I mean, he spends the entire movie chain-smoking, drinking, and hiding from his ex-wives and kid. Uh, so, you know, you, you know, these are like anti-archetypes almost, and it, but it works. Um, you know, sometimes when you take an archetype and you reverse it, it's, it becomes appealing also just because for what it isn't. And I think, I think Halloween 3 uh, succeeds on many levels. It's a very good movie. If you've never seen it, by all means, watch it. And if you saw it and you didn't like it, give it another chance. And, uh, another... You know, we don't have to go into like a lengthy analysis, uh, but uh, yeah, you did remind me that uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 Herman Munster uh, character in Pet Cemetery is almost like the same type of Hermes character as um, uh, Doctor Loomis from ha- Halloween. Oh, I agree. Where, yeah, 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 and yeah. I thought that was a, a really uh, excellent analysis on your part to show how he comes out of uh, uh, ancient mythology to yeah uh, stay relevant to today's audiences about analyzing what's really going on. He you know he he has the inside track on the truth. Exactly. Um, the the character it's um, I forget his I forget the character's name. Um, it was Fred Gwynn, I believe, who played him. Uh, this is in Pet Cemetery. Uh, I forget the, the name of the that character. Ju- is it Judd? Yeah, Judd. 
he um i forget that Judge crandall i believe it is uh yeah he he is the same guy i mean it's the character who knows everything but dispenses the information piecemeal and yeah i mean it's the old you know sage type you know solitary hermit figure hermes trismegistus it's the hermit card of the tarot if you want to see what this you know the graybeard figure um, who, again, possesses the esoteric insights as to what's going on, but generally only doles it out piecemeal. Um, and again, yeah, I mean, this is the Loomis, Dr. Loomis character played wonderfully by Donald Pleasance in Halloween. Uh, this, you know, again, is Morpheus in the Matrix films or Obi-Wan Kenobi or Albus Dumbledore or Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. Um, and yeah, I mean, this character's origin is in ancient ancient mythology. Um, a lot of the characters, um, you know, in movies are based on ancient archetypes, ancient mythology, um, archetypal imagery. Uh, you know, if you're interested, if you're interested in that, by all means, read my books. Um, I talk about it. You know, this is why I base my books upon. I mean, this is a cornerstone of one of my books. Um, if you want to go further, I mean, by all means, you need to read the works of Joseph Campbell. Um, the Hero with a Thousand Faces is a wonderful book. I highly recommend. This is a book that I lean on uh, and cite, cite uh, routinely in my book. Um, there's another book called The Power of Myth by Campbell and Bill Moyers. Uh, this was a dialogue between them. Uh, that, that's another good book I highly recommend. Uh, another book that is must must be read um, if you're interested in this is a book. Um, I'm probably painting with a little bit of broad strokes here when I call him the British version of Joseph Campbell. Um, probably, you know, painting with a little broad strokes, but a guy named J.G. Frazier, uh, you want to read his book called The Golden Bow. Uh, he, he wrote a, that, that book's about comparative magic, comparative religion, comparative sorcery. Um, I, again, this is another book that I lean on. Um, my, my analysts, my, my, you know, when I analyze Halloween and the holidays like Christmas, um, he, he talks about that in the golden bow about Halloween, you know, being this fire celebration, you know, you know, coming out of, uh, you know, the British Isles, you know, celebrating the, you know, the dead, um, you know, this was the night that witches and goblins and bulls were given license to terrorize the land. And, you know, he gets into the, you know, sun worship as well, you know, December 25th. So, yeah, I mean, these books are cornerstones. Um, and again, these are books that I rely upon. Joseph Campbell, J.G. Frazier, of course, Symbolism. You're going to get into Manly P. Hall, uh, Albert Pike, Madame Blavatsky. These are all wonderful books as well. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're interested, you know, uh, you know, th th these are books that I rely upon because why they're critical is that they talk about this ancient mythology that turns up in modern popular culture. And, you know, that, that this is how you analyze this by applying the ancient to the modern. Well, you just mentioned the uh, tarot cards and uh, specifically the hermit one. And, you know, I, I don't think we've really spoken about that. I, I, I don't know if there's a Halloween uh, connection to the cards. But you know, several of the movies that you do discuss have scenes where uh, there there is a recreation of the card. Yeah. Uh, can, can can you tell us a, a little bit about you know, a couple of those examples? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, when you're dealing with tarot cards, you're dealing with archetypal imagery and the archetypes. 
if you're interested in this, um, you need to read the works of Carl Jung. Um, there's a wonderful book on tar tarot, on the tarot cards. Um, it's, the, it's my favorite. I have loads of books in my library on tarot cards. My favorite one that I am constantly turning to is a book, and it's called The Tarot, surprisingly, and it's by a man named Richard Cavendish. Um, it came out in the 1970s. I know you can get it. I'm sure it is long out of print. Um, if, it, if it's in print, it's been reprinted. But you could probably find it on eBay or, you know, on Amazon as a used book or on A Books or something like that. It won't break the bank. I mean, it probably costs you maybe around, because it's an out-of-print book, probably around 25 maybe $40. But Cavendish's book is fantastic because he goes through every one of the cards and he gets into, you know, what it meant to the golden dawn, the Egyptian symbolism, the archetypal symbolism, you know, the traditional symbolism, when the cards reverse the positive attributes, the negative attributes. And yeah, I mean, these cards can come alive. Um, you know, the tower card, uh, you know, destruction, you know, is, you know, you, you find that card in Black Swan with the Beth McIntyre character who just wants to destroy herself. Um, the Ace of Cups, um, it gets tipped over in Robin Hood, the adventures of Robin Hood, uh, with Basil Rathbone and Errol Flynn. You have the silver chalice getting knocked over. That's the Ace of Cups. Uh, when the Ace of Cups is reversed or knocked over, it signifies ill omen and bad things are on their way. And of course, in the adventures of Robin Hood, this means that the, uh, uh, you know, Robin Hood's on his way and he's going to right the wrongs and restore King, uh, you know, restore um, King Richard back to the throne. Um, you know, and trash King John. Um, so yeah, archetypes, the hermit, uh, you know, again, we, we discussed about that with Dr. Loomis and Judd, you know, the, 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 the wizard, the character who knows everything and dispenses it piecemeal. Um, certainly you get into some of the lesser arcana of the tarot, um, you know, because she's not a major player in the movie, we turn again to Black Swan with the mother character who's the, you know, bitter, you know, mother who's jealous. Um, you know, this is the uh, Queen of Swords reversed who signifies that. Um, the um, Empress card is Maid Marian in Robin Hood. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's when you're dealing with Tarot and these and these you know, the major trumps, the major arcana, the the shadow gallery, whatever you want to call it. Um, these cards can come alive because they're archetypal. And a lot of the characters in movies are archetypes. So you will, you will clearly, not all the time, but you can definitely link, you know, the, you know, the archetypes of film to tarot cards, uh, you know, becoming living embodiments of the tarot, the magician card. Um, I mean, the agent of change, uh, this is probably one of the most popular ones. This is Dale Cooper of Twin Peaks. Um, you know, this is Lily in Black Swan. Um, you know, the, the magician is, you know, by far and away one of the more powerful archetypes. Uh, the person who's injected and, and upends, um, upends things. Uh, you know, if you want to see, you know, some of the things I talk about in, in the book is when you find, you know, the archetypes exist among us. Um, you know, you, you know, you will find, uh, archetypes, you know, existing, you know, amongst the, amongst the living. Um, there's a book on that, uh, by Sally Nichols, uh, called Young in the Tarot. And, and she talks about how not only are these archetypes, uh, how not only do these archetypes 
exist in popular culture and you know they originate in ancient mythology then they turn up in popular culture she takes it one step further and i agree with her how they become re- people in reality uh the fool becomes lynette frome uh when she tried to assassinate president ford uh the 13th card of the tarot is uh dylan Klebold and eric harris the columbine shooters who killed 13 people echoing the card's attributes you know death uh, you have, um, you know, the magician, the, the disruptor, uh, you know, the agent of change, Donald Trump, who was born in June under the house of Gemini. Well, what planet rules Gemini? Mercury, of course, the disruptor, um, you know, the destroyer of worlds. Uh, so these archetypes exist in reality, and they, 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 draw, they draw humankind to it like a moth to flame. I mean, this is why people are fascinated by people like, you know, Harrison Klebold and with Trump, um, you know, you, you, humanity is hardwired to these archetypes. They exist in ancient mythology. They exist in our subconscious minds. They exist in popular culture. They turn up on the silver screen. And yes, they do walk amongst us um, personified as real human beings. And, and, yeah, you do mention the uh, temperance card and that uh, – uh, uh, was it the the uh, hand with candles that uh, appears in the Wicker Man? So you, you know the variety of uh, 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 scenes in the movies that you know you analyze it, you know, take us back to you know, these cards and you know, the what was in the original intent. In the cards, it gives us such a, a new vision for what the director is really trying to convey to us, and and, and, and I just really enjoy the wide variety of movies in your books that uh, make us. Reevaluates what you know we're seeing. You know, like at, at this time of the year, you know, in, in the movies are running all, all all day long. Yeah, I mean, it's um, you know, again, you're dealing with archetypes exist in the subconscious mind. They're subconscious, so when you make them conscious, you are drawn to them. And that's the whole idea is you may not be able to rec- – that's one of the reasons I wrote my book is to recognize this stuff. Right. Uh, you know, if you don't you – know, you, you know, you will recognize it unless you are trained to recognize it. Um, one of the things that you mentioned briefly was the temperance card. Um, and I don't have my book in front of me, but if you, if, if you watch the original Suspiria movie from 1977 – I talk about this in Cinema Symbolism too – they remade this movie. They remade it. They, they, or they re-envisioned it, I should say, last year. I'm talking about that in Cinema Symbolism 3. That's a very dark movie as well. But the original uh, Suspiria from 77, and I don't believe this was intentional, but I believe it is, speaks to the power of the archetypes and the tarot. Um, the end of that movie, um, and again, I don't have my book in front of me, but the end of Suspiria, starting with when she goes, when Susie Banyan, Jessica Harper, goes and speaks to Milius, the psychologist, who again is your Hermes Trismegistus figure, your Loomis character, as it were. Um, From that point on to the end of the movie, 
is literally like cards and I don't have it, I don't have the book in front of me, it's like cards like nine through twenty of the major arcana in order. You can literally, if you understand the symbolism of the card, you can literally go through the deck of the tarot for about card 9 through 20, and it appears on the screen. Not the actual card, but the archetypal imagery, the archetypal associations with that card are go bang, 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 right in order. I mean, you have the hermit, you have you know, temperance, you have the wheel of fortune, death, uh, the tower. Um, they all come bang, 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 right in order. Um, and it's fascinating. It's like when you watch Suspiria, the end of it, this is the 77 movie, um, and you're familiar with this. I mean, it's like, my God. I mean, you're just literally watching, um, you know, a tarot deck, you know, being like flipped over on the big screen in front of your eyes. Um, I mean, and it, it's it's just, you know, incredible. It's incredible to see. And like I said, it, it, to me, it really just speaks of, you know, and it value, evaluates um, the you know, power of this archetypal imagery. And again, this is, like I said, cornerstone research that my books, that my movie books are, are based upon, um, you know, how, this, how these ancient doctrines surface in popular culture. Um, it's a very fascinating study. Like I said, it's something I love writing about. I love investigating. And of course, I love uh, coming on shows uh, like yours, Mark and Barbara, to uh, talk about. Yeah, it's... Yeah, we can look at your photo of you know the hanged man on page 184 and then you have a uh, juxtaposing uh, photo from uh, you know one of the Batman uh, the Dark Knight where Heath Ledger is hanging upside down and it's like a you know, recreation of the card. Absolutely. So, yeah, so yeah, that's all it, just self-explanatory. You just look at the uh, two photos. Hey, it's, uh, it's right there, and you know uh, that could take us into you know t- talking about you know the new uh, Joker movie uh, that seems to be uh, getting a, a, a lot of attention. You know, how are these archetypes uh, still being used as we get into, you know, nearly, uh, you know, the second decade of the 21st century? Well, the, the, uh, there's two questions there. The first one is uh, the hangman card. Uh, I'll deal with Joker in a minute. The hangman okay. card is the arch traitor, is the arch enemy, is the arch enemy card. I and mean, that's the villain associated with Judas Iscariot. So in Batman, in the Dark Knight movie, who's the arch enemy of Batman? Of course, it's the Joker, Heath Ledger, and he turns up as a hanged man. Um, I first started talking about this is something that I mentioned, I believe, in the original movie book, or maybe it wasn't. No, this was in um, – I can't remember where I first started mentioning this. Maybe it is in the first um, cinema book. When did that come out? Yeah, I think I mentioned it in the very first cinema symbolism book about how the Joker um, character played by Ledger – yeah, the movie came out in 2008. Yeah, that's right. So um, I talked about this in my in my first cinema book, how the hangman car was being reproduced in The Dark Knight with Ledger being hung upside down. And a couple of people beat up on me and said, oh, this is just a stretch. <laughs> then in the suicide movie, um, a couple of years later, you had Jared Leto playing the Joker in that exact same occult posture. Um, 
as the hanged man card, and I put that book on my, I put that image in the book where he's laying there with the with the leg, you know, you know, with his leg touching his kneecap, and the you know, and the camera zooms around to make him look upside down with the knives radiating out from his head like the sun behind the hanged man card. It's a complete reproduction of that card, and again, it's it's transferring the imagery of the arch enemy to the Joker from the from the hanged man card. Um, no question uh, that, that that isn't being done. And like I said, that is not a coincidence by any stretch. Yeah, the, the new Joker movie, uh, a lot to delve into. And I haven't even seen the thing yet. Um, what I have seen, um, very dark movie from what it looks like. Like I said, I've seen all the trailers and all the previews. Um, I, I do know the ending of the movie, so I will get into a little spoiler here. If people haven't seen it, maybe they want to turn it off. But I, I haven't seen the movie, but I know I know how it ends. Um, but yeah, the the Joker makeup that, um, that that Joaquin Phoenix is wearing is modeled after John Wayne Gacy of all things. I mean, how dark is this? Uh, the the Pogo the Clown persona of Gacy where the blue triangles around the eyes, the G Gacy's makeup, um, whether Gacy did it subconsciously or not, is modeled after his human skull. The, the grin, the dark red grin, and then the uh, blue triangles around the eyes are, you know, the deep eye sockets is, is designed to look like a human skull. And of course, Gacy, whatever, was murdered 33 young boys and men and buried them in the crawl space of his, uh, of his home. So yeah, I mean, we're dealing with some, I mean, you have a you know, a villain from the DC universe who, you know, the Joker, his makeup is based upon John Wayne Gacy. So, I mean, it's very dark. Um, and the, um, the, the, this is actually confirmed in the movie where um, the character of Joaquin Phoenix, I believe his name is Arthur Fleck. Um, he actually is performing in a comedy club at one point, And the name of the comedy club is Pogo's. And again, this is uh, named after John Wayne Gacy's alter ego. So you have the Joker's makeup based upon John Wayne Gacy and the comedy club named after John Wayne Gacy, you know, a serial killer. Uh, very, very, very uh, dark imagery indeed, to say the least. Uh, then it, there is a twist in this movie. And I don't know if people are aware of this or not, but I don't know if this is just a case of Jungian synchronicity or if this was intentionally done um, by the filmmakers. Uh, for the Joker, and I'll spoil the movie here, so if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to know the end of it, maybe you want to just turn it down right now or fast forward ahead a little bit, but um, the end of the Joker movie, you watch the movie, and then the end of the movie is the Joker in an insane asylum, essentially telling, basically indicating that the story you have just seen is his narrative. This is what's called the unreliable narrator twist ending. Uh, you know, where what you have seen may not be 100% true. It could be the creation of a mentally ill person, uh, the Joker, Arthur Fleck being in the asylum. We don't know. It's left for you to speculate um, what's true, what isn't. Is it all made up? Is it all true? You don't know. Um, there are clues placed out the movie that indicate a lot of it is made up in the Joker's head or Fleck's head. Uh, I'm not going to get into that right now. But what is very interesting about that is um, – that harkens back to another movie. Um, this is, again, what's called the un un unreliable narrator twist ending. Well, what is really fascinating about this is, and again, I don't know if this is intentional or not, the, the very first movie that had this twist ending in it, I believe is actually one of the very first movies that was ever made. It came out in 1920, um, and the movie's called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. 
this is a movie that I take on Cinema Symbolism 3, but The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, if you've never seen it, by all means, watch it. It's a silent film. Um, it, 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 so it has the twist ending of the unreliable, unreliable narrator, where you watch the movie and you find out the guy telling the story is in a mental institution. He's insane. So you don't know what you've watched is fact, is reality, is a combination of both, is make-believe, is he made it up, is he merged facts with lies or lies with facts? Is it all true? Is none of it true? Again, this is the unreliable twist ending. It goes back to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Well, what's fascinating is the, the, that movie, uh, Caligari, um, features an actor named Conrad Veidt or Conrad Veidt, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, he plays the somnambulist in the movie named Caesar. Uh, and a couple years later, after um, after doing Caligari, uh, Conrad Conrad Veidt or Conrad Veidt would go on to make a movie known as The Man Who Laughs. Um, and in it, he played a in it, he plays a character known as Gwen Plain or or uh, Gwen Plain. You can pronounce it either way. Gwen Plain is usually how it's pronounced. Um, and he plays this character who can't stop smiling. Um, this is interesting because, and you see where I'm going with this. Uh, the the character of Gwen Plain, uh, portrayed by Conrad Veidt, or Veidt, is the inspiration for who else but the Joker. Um, the the Gwen Plain character, the the physical appearance, um, is what Bob Kane modeled the Joker after when he drew him up. Um, so you have this really great link between these two movies with Caligari and the Joker, where you have the unreliable narrator ending of both movies. The earlier movie starred uh, Conrad Veidt, who would go on to play who else but the man who smiles, Gwen Plain, who would become the inspiration of the Joker, who Phoenix would play years later with the same ending of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Sort of a Jungian synchronistic cycle that just seems very odd to me. Um, I don't know if the filmmakers did that intentionally or if that's just synchronicity or coincidence, but that's a very interesting link up, a uh, very interesting nexus uh, between those three movies, between the guy who basically, you know, you know, between Caligari and the actor who basically, you know, inspired the physical appearance of the Joker. And then years later, you have the Joker movie that has the same ending as Caligari in it with the actor who inspired the Joker. Fascinating, uh, fascinating. And again, just shows you, you know, how this stuff seems to repeat itself and uh, seems to prove that Jung was correct uh, when it comes to synchronicity. Well, what you're uh, talking about with uh, the cabinet, Dr. Kelly, Gary, it just seems like uh, early on, uh, movie directors quickly picked up on I- introducing these archetypal concepts, and, and it, it just it seems like it's like it's always been there. And you, and you also you know, t- touch on uh, you know the same concept in uh, Metropolis, which came out what, what like six six seven years later. You know, it was another you know, German. Uh, uh, f- film, but yeah, yeah. One of the nice things about your 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 book, uh, cinema symbolism too, is you know this long pattern, uh, ne- nearly a full century now, of th- these ideas being developed. You know, when we go uh, 
see see the movies at the theaters. Oh yeah, I mean it's um, you know you, you know you can pre- predates you know it predates movies. I mean you can you can find archetypal imagery in the works of Mozart, you know in, in Shakespeare. My God, uh, Wagner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the ring cycle of Wagner is the Odinic mysteries. Um, you know again you'll find this in the works of Tolkien. You know, and C.S. Lewis and people like that. You know, Lovecraft, Poe, even, um, even Melville. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, this this stuff. You know, this is what, you know, kind of what I argue in the book is this stuff. You know, is pervasive throughout history because it's archetypal. Um, you know, it dwells in our subconscious mind and it manifests kind of regardless of our intention. Um, and movie makers are aware of that, so they they draw upon this this imagery and these themes and these personifications uh, to, to, you know, because they know humankind is hardwired to it. Um, So, you know, you, you know, and some people will say, well, that's a form of mind control. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe it is to an extent, but um, you know, I I don't think any movies are forcing anybody to go see them or you go and watch a movie and you come out as a Manchurian candidate pre-programmed to shoot somebody or something. I don't think anything like that, but um, no, it's uh, like I said. If 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 you know you know the, the archetypes and uh, the, the, this you know these themes, you know the the dying and you know the monomythic Campbell, the resurrected Sun Man, um, or Solar Messiah. Yeah, I mean these things are pervasive throughout history. They repeat, and uh, you know you can find them in the tarot cards. And you know this again is the cornerstone of my research and is you know what I wrote the first two movies about. And like I said. Um, Cinema Symbolism 3, I can tell you and the audience, is complete as we do this. Um, uh, I have to still tweak it a little bit. I still have to go through it again myself and take a look at it and edit it. Then i got to turn it over to an editor. Um, so Cinema Symbolism 3 will should be out probably April, May uh, 2020 is what my release date is. And, um, yeah, I'm real happy with the way it came out. And like I said, once that book comes out, um, it's back to doing radio, and I will uh, – we return full blast uh, doing radio shows, but it's uh, good to good to return. Good to return with you guys and do this Halloween special. Um, you know to to keep to keep it going and uh, you know you know to to return to the airways as it were. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you here, Rob, and you know just let us know when Cinema Symbolism Three is out. We'll we'll do. Another show, um, you know, for for uh, another aspect of you know, your books that you delve into, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we ought to look at uh, uh, settings too, and you know, you do. Uh, cover the, the uh, monastic setting of uh, the name of the rose, and you you, you work in that uh, movie, and yeah, that's a, another one of those I think o- overlooked movies like Halloween Three, but it is a really uh, uh, Creepy movie that yeah uh, d- does fit in with uh, this uh, hol- holiday. Uh, 
you know, people are mysteriously dying with, you know, you know, after working with these uh, um, illuminated manuscripts. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that movie that is uh, frequently well, overlooked? I really can, Mark, because it's not a movie I analyze. Well, you, you know, you did, well, you did mention it. Well, I mentioned it in one sentence. <laughs> So uh, I'll have to pass on that one. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I'm I, sorry. I I really it, it, thought that was a neat movie. I just I, I that's all right. Okay. And we'll cross yeah, that off the list. Edit that part out. Yeah. I I I never. I've, it's been years since I've seen it, and uh, I just mentioned it in one sentence, and um, I I couldn't analyze it right now. Okay. And um. You know, we also can get into as we look at um, other settings at this time of the year. There are frequently um, Masonic symbols in uh, cemeteries. And they, you know, they do look really uh, creepy. Yeah, uh, there's you know, the possibility of you know, the connotation being like a pentagram. Uh, but but there are other meanings to the you know the different fraternal organizations. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe as you know, we walk through the graveyards at, at this time of the year and see some of these symbols on the tombstones, uh, maybe we'll have a different understanding. Sure. Yeah, you 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 will occasionally. I mean, or not occasionally, see Masonic emblems on cemeteries on grave markers, um, and of course, cemeteries are a very uh, popular place to visit at Halloween. Um, you know, maybe not for good intentions, but people go to them uh, nevertheless. Uh, but no, uh, the pentagram within masonry, of course, it has a very negative connotation. Um, it was essentially, you know, when it's one point up and two points down, it's a positive emblem, um, like you'll see on, um, you know, the tip of the wand of Glenda the Good Witch um, in the Wizard of Oz. In the Wizard of Oz, that's a white magician. When the one points up, two points down. When the two points are up and the one point is down, that's the goat of Mendes. Um, that's left-hand path. That's sort of negative magic. Um, yeah, and in the Freemasonry, uh, the pentagram is generally um, – I, I, I can't recall off the top of my head if I've ever seen it uh, on, on a grave marker. Usually it's the square and compasses. Um, but it, it, the pentagram does turn up on Masonic – you know, trestle boards and iconography and lodges. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, it, it refers to, it can refer to numerous things. Um, none of them are negative. Uh, they, they can represent the uh, Egyptian dog star Sirius, um, which is, of course, the virgin mother Isis in the Egyptian mysteries. Um, Pythagoras uh, associated uh, symbol was a uh, pentagram, you know, with the five point, with the four points being earth, air, fire, water, water, excuse me, and the fifth point being sort of this ethereal uh, element that, you know, mastered the other four. Um, so the pentagram, you know, can have numerous interpretations. Um, you know, what I would, what I would just say, at that, you know, when it comes to symbolism in general is, um, 
really when, when you're dealing with symbolism, whether it be the pentagram or, or something else, um, it's really the creator's intent uh, behind it, whether it is, it is being used negatively or positively. No symbol is 100% negative. One symbol is no, one, I'm not 100% positive or negative. Um, you know, it can be either or or one or the other. Um, a lot of time, it, a lot of times, it's just the you know the creator's intent has to be you know what what needs to be examined. Um, so you know uh, you know and this is you know you'll hear people say oh well you know the Masons use a pentagram, you know well the Church of Satan uses a pentagram yes but they're not being used in the same context. Um, you, know, uh, you know, you know, just as you know, the Nazis used the swastika. Uh, Native American Indians also use the swastika. Um, you know, Buddhists use it. Um, so you can you can uh, you know ascribe different meanings. And this is what this is what I talk about with the symbolism in the book. Um, you know, in the in the movie books. Um, you know, it's the context in which a lot of this stuff is presented that supplies the answer as to what you're looking for. So, for example, I've mentioned this on here before, and I've mentioned it on other shows. So, for example, and I'm not going to get into the symbolism, but I'll just mention it as an example. So, we take the number 88, um, for example. Um, in the movie Back to the Future, that number has a meaning. Um, in the movie The Exorcist, that number has a meaning. Both are legitimate, but they have different meanings. Um, both are legitimate me interpretations. Um, but they just have, because of the context in which the number is presented, they have different yet legitimate meanings. Uh, another example would be the films Black Swan and Crimson Peak. Um, in the movie Black Swan, the butterflies that cover Nina Sayers' uh, bedroom mean one thing. Uh, the butterfly in Crimson Peak means something else. Uh, so both have symbolic meaning, both are symbolically important, yet it's the context in which they're presented will help supply you with what the uh, director or the filmmaker is going for by using that symbol. That's really the best way for me to explain it. Always look at the, it's from me being a lawyer, you have to look at the context or the surrounding circumstances to determine if an act is a, for example, a first degree murder, second degree murder, third degree murder, or manslaughter. Um, the answer to that question lies in the surrounding circumstances, um, and it's the exact same analysis that has to occur when looking at movies. The surrounding circumstances or context must be analyzed or examined closely to decipher or discern what the creator's intent is by employing a certain symbol or emblem or theme or character. That is critical to this research. And well, he do. Um, make a analogy, if that's uh, the right word. Uh, by going into a little bit of detail on uh, William Blake's uh, marriage of heaven and hell, and uh, the uh, balanced duality. Uh, Information it, it, that's similar to what you were just talking about, but you know, that you know, just making looking at the context, it, it it is you know, are, are there the balances within the uh, you know uh, symbols of the characters? You know, are, are you looking 
correctly providing the correct interpretation of uh, you know one character and you know there's the balance of another character somewhere else in the film you know I, I, th- I thought that was a good point you, you know you you make about approaching uh, uh, looking at these movies in in, in the way you did yeah, you like, well, analyze them. Right. Well, you have to look at these. But what I what I don't do is when I analyze a movie, and this is something actually. It's funny you mentioned this because this is something I mentioned in Cinema Symbolism Three in the in the introduction. When I when I analyze a movie, I don't do it from a Christian right wing standpoint or from so, social justice warrior standpoint, saying all these movies are demonic and evil and satanic and Hollywood is infested with Satanism. I analyze movies like I would a lawyer, completely objectively. Um, <laughs> I look at everything completely objectively, and that's why, and I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back, that's why my analysis um, is never wrong, um, because it's done objectively. I, I, I present the information, and I don't judge it. Um, I present the analysis of a film, and I don't judge it. I leave it, for, I, I treat you, the reader, as the jury. I present the facts. I present the analysis. You, the reader, make up your own mind whether you believe this is good bad, positive, negative, neutral, evil, good. That's up to you, the reader, Um, just like a jury. That's up for a jury to decide. I present the facts um, objectively. I analyze the facts or the movies objectively. If I, as any lawyer would do, if I see something negative, I will point it out. If I see something positive, I will point it out. If I see evidence of mind control, I will point it out. If I see something that's um, satanic, I will point it out. If I see something that is uh, divine, I will point it out. Um, I look at the movies 100% objectively. I don't come at it from any social, you know, standpoint. You know, pro-Masonic, anti-Masonic, pro-Christian, anti-Christian, um, pro-Hollywood, anti-Hollywood. I do it 100% objectively. When I see satanic symbolism, I will tell it. When I see evidence of um, a strange coincidences, I will tell you about it. If I see things that don't add up or don't make sense, I will tell you about it. If I see archetypes, I will tell you about them. If I see um, duality, I will, I will point it out. If I see, you know, uh, tarot archetypes, I will point it out. Um, if I see positive symbolism, I will point it out. If I see things that are negative or anti-Christian, I will tell you. Um, the, the Star Wars movie, the Force Awakens, Episode Seven, has a very deep um, anti-Christian theme in it, which I talk about in Cinema Sim in the next Cinema Symbolism book. So I, I point it all out objectively, and I, I analyze it. And in the end, it's you, the reader, you, the jury, who decides what to make of the information I've just told you. And you know, you even do state in. Your chapter on um, uh, the the, the uh, shining that uh, uh, Kubrick intentionally uses numerology doubles and repeating imagery, uh, but you know, by the en- end of the book um, or the uh, end of the movie, you know, it's just kind of. Yeah, he he does he doesn't conclude it with being really concrete about what he was intending for using all these dualities and doubles and 
Oh no, he tells you exactly. I know exactly why he's doing yeah. it. But no, there, there is an exact, there is a concrete white reason why he's doing that, and that is to convey to your subconscious mind um, the the Overlook Hotel is a Ouroboros, is a endless repetitive cycle that never ends. So he bombards your subconscious mind with endless repetition, repeating right. numbers, repeating symbolism. There is a motivation for that. And the motivation is that he is trying to convey, convince your subconscious mind that the Overlook Hotel is a symbolic Ouroboros, biting its tail, ending where it begins, forever repeating. That's the, um, that's the underpinning that Kubrick is going for with The Shining. Okay. I... Um found the part uh, where Grady has no memory of killing his daughters with an axe, and then he admits later that he corrected them. Uh, that, that I, I, I missed, uh, misquoted that one. But, uh, yeah, you're really clear on all, all the other uh, duality. I, I just used the wrong uh, the, the, the wrong passage. But, it, yeah, that yeah, you're. Uh, yeah, we've covered that you know, when you're on earlier, but it, you know, it's it, it, it's just all these insights that you bring to the, these movies at, that you know we're watching at this time of the year. Just, you know, just uh, re- really gives us something else to. Uh, Think yeah. about and I'm looking forward to seeing the, you know, the numerous samples that you uh, give us in Cinema Symbolism three next spring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, for starters, I want to say thank you for having me on again uh, for this Halloween special. It was uh, nice to um, come on again after having been off the radio uh, for about four or five months or so. So it's wonderful to return, and thank you again for having me on. And, uh, you know, I thought this Halloween special was terrific, and uh, I can't, you know, like I said, when it's when it's out, um, I will definitely promoted all over the place so thank you barbara thank you mark for having me on um yeah well you know halloween the horror movie you know halloween part of halloween now is horror movies um i know know amc shows a lot of them i think turner classic does um so yeah i mean i horror movies um are living nightmares so you should come as no surprise that they are loaded with esoteric imagery um and yeah, I mean, if, if you like horror movies, the horror, the horror genre has produced some of my favorite movies. So they're movies that I love to take on and I love to analyze. And I, uh, you know, talk about horror films in all three of my cinema books, Cinema Symbolism 1, Cinema Symbolism 2, and then, of course, Cinema Symbolism 3. Um, I will give a preview briefly, a teaser um, for some of the movies that we're going to analyze in Cinema Symbolism 3. Okay, so, lay it on. Yeah, so we're going to do all of Twin Peaks. Uh, we're going to do the original 1990-1991 um, television show. Uh, we're going to do the uh, Fire Walk With Me movie, and we're going to do the recent Twin Peaks The Return uh, that aired on Showtime two years ago. Um, that will all finally be broken down. Uh, that consumed my summer, I should point out. Uh, the summer of 2019 was spent doing nothing but Twin Peaks. It's very dense, 
Uh, it's David Lynch, so it's very complex. Um, some of the horror movies we're going to do, we're going to do Suspiria, the, the latest uh, iteration of Suspiria. I did the original one back in Cinema Symbolism 2. So Cinema Symbolism 3 will have the uh, re reinvention of Suspiria. We're going to do the Halloween movie that was released last year. This is the direct sequel uh, to, to um, the Halloween movie starring Jamie Lee again. Um, that's overloaded with all kinds of goodies. Um, so we're gonna, so I did that one. We're going to do some archetypes in a made for uh, excuse me in a made for television movie that came out in 1981. That came out right before Halloween called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, arguably one of the best uh, horror TV movies ever made. Probably coming in right behind Salem's Lot there. Uh, that came out in, that came out in October of 81. Um, I'm going to do that one. We're going to do The Witch uh, by Robert Eggers. Uh, that's a very interesting movie. Uh, a lot going on in that. Uh, he just he just released one right now as we're doing this uh, called The Lighthouse, which looks very symbolic. I haven't seen it yet, but I look forward to it. Uh, so, so what's some of the other horror movies uh, that's in there? Uh, Suspiria, Halloween, The Witch. Oh, uh, there, there's a couple more in there that it's eluding me. Um, we're going to do movies. Uh, some of the other movies that I'm taking on, again, Lynch. So we'll be doing Wild at Heart and Eraserhead. Uh, we're going to be revisiting uh, The Sacred Feminine with movies like The Red Shoes and Red Sparrow with Jennifer Lawrence, uh, films such as that. I'm going to be doing a whole, I got a whole chapter on Hitchcock with Bates Motel and Psycho. Uh, a lot, a lot of oh. those things, yeah. So, um, like I said, the book is actually done uh, and uh, it's complete. Uh, but it still has to go through an editorial phase, you know, the graphic design. So I am looking for a March, April 2020 release of the book, perhaps May at the absolute latest. It won't go beyond that. So once the book's out, I will be returning to radio and podcasting in earnest. And uh, when that happens, I look forward to returning to the nightlight with Barbara DeLong and Mark Eddy. And uh, I'm sure we'll have another terrific show with a whole slate of new movies to talk about. Yeah, it, well, it, I'm it, sure it, you will. Rob, um, I, I, I hate to interrupt you, but our time is up, Mark. Oh. So I'm going to have to okay. thank you and Robert. This is, this is an amazing way for us to kick off Halloween. And all you trick-or-treaters out there, be careful, stay safe, don't eat all the candy at once, and... Uh, those of you who are grown-ups, tune in again for another good show as, as they unroll here. Mark and I are going to have a lot of really good stuff coming up. So good night, everybody, and thanks for listening.